0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for... Your word this morning, um, God, I do pray that we would uh, know it, uh, that we would reckon it to be true for our own life. I mean, God, we would yield to the truth of what we see in your word. Father, help us to realize that uh, as we strive to fight sin, as we strive to live resurrected lives, that it starts with our knowledge of your word. God, we have to have that truth that we can trust in. And God, as we put our faith in in what we know, I pray that it would resonate to our own lives, that we would reckon it to be true, that we would uh, see that the truth that we're learning, the truth that we uh, have revealed to us from you uh, is not only true in general, but it's true about us that are believers. So God, I pray that it would, um, would it really resonate into our own life today, what the resurrection means for us practically in our own walk with you. then, Father, I pray that we would yield to those truths, uh, that we would yield our bodies to those truths. Um, Father, help us to be faithful in in submitting our members as weapons for righteousness. Uh, God, that we would not turn over our bodies to the enemy, uh, to be used for evil purposes. But instead, Father, I pray that uh, through your Spirit, through your sanctifying power, that you would work in us, not just to will, but to work for your good pleasure. Father, we pray that as we Celebrate the resurrection this morning, Father, that we would be able to celebrate the resurrection in our own life uh, for the salvation that you've blessed us with. We ask these things in Jesus' name, Amen. As we continue our journey through uh, the book of Romans, we saw last week specifically, uh, or really the last two weeks, that we're um, through. Through our joining with Christ, we are dead to certain things. Specifically, in chapter 6, we see that we are dead to sin, that we've been set free from sin, that we've been set free from the bondage to sin, that we've been rescued from that relationship. And that has all kinds of practical implications for our life. Uh, It really has all kinds of practical implications for our time and accountability with each other, the things that we even say that we're struggling with and how we're struggling with those things. We want to make sure that it lines up with what Scripture has to say about us. And in Romans chapter 7, we saw that there's a a right way and a wrong way to pursue sanctification. That even in being saved, and being saved from sin and rescued from that bondage and slavery, uh, if we're not not careful, we fall back into the mindset of, okay, now that I'm saved, I'm saved apart from the law, but my sanctification means me going back to the law and and trying to fulfill the law in my own flesh and my own power. And we saw last week that Paul uh, draws our attention to the fact that uh, if we're seeking to obey the law for our sanctification, we will be met with failure time and time again. Um, And so we even highlighted the the wrestling that Paul does there at the end of chapter 7. Is he talking about a Christian? Is he talking about a non-Christian? We looked at supporting evidence for both of those perspectives last week, and I told you that I've kind of arrived at a, Uh, a perspective that doesn't really focus on is it a Christian or is it a non-Christian. It's an individual who doesn't understand the purpose of the law. And I told you that was a deviation from some of the guys that I've listened to and respected for a long time and what their understanding of the text is. Um, But then I was encouraged even this week as I was studying John Stott and his commentary on Romans that that he sees this man in Romans 7 as someone who, who doesn't understand the law. Specifically, maybe a Jewish individual who, who had been taught to love the law and would have told you that he loved the law. And now that he's saved, goes back to the law. And we see this all through the New Testament. Uh, Paul and Peter and other apostles having to go into churches and wrestle with their minds about where the law fits into their sanctification. That they were wanting to revert back to a legalistic, law-keeping, rule-keeping type mindset. And I think that's the picture that Paul gives us in Romans 7. This individual trying to obey the law in his flesh. We said that there was really no mention of the Holy Spirit. And all that it leads to is frustration. At the end of chapter 7 there, he's, he's crying out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I told you last week, I can't. I can't view that as an okay scenario. I can't view this as a mature Christian standpoint, that there has to be more. There has to be a a different level of victory that we can expect in the Christian life if we're being empowered by the Spirit. And I think that's what Paul gives us in Romans chapter 8. I think he begins to show us that the law can be accomplished, that obedience can be accomplished when the Holy Spirit is working in and through our life. I think Paul brings that to our attention in chapter 8. If we were to title or uh, characterize chapter 8 in a way that we can remember, and we've been trying to do that with each chapter, so Romans chapter 1, that's the condemnation of the immoral man. Romans chapter 2 is the condemnation of the the moral man and the religious man. Romans chapter 3 is... Uh, the condemnation of the world, and then salvation through Christ. Romans chapter 4 is the example of justification with uh, Abraham. Romans chapter 5 is what? Anybody remember? It's the two Adams, so we've got Adam and Christ, and, and the comparison and the contrasting there of the works that they have done and how that affects us individually. Romans chapter 6, we've already highlighted this week, it's where we are dead to sin. That's where you get the passage about baptism and the picture of baptism and why we baptize. Romans chapter 7 is our understanding of the law now that we're saved and how we are set free from the law. And I challenged you last week, we are set free from the law in the sense that uh, we're no longer uh, under its legal demands. We're no longer condemned for not keeping the law. We're also set free in the sense that Um, we don't keep the law as just a list of rules. I told you last week that in in salvation, we're now set free to obey promises that lead to obedience, that there's a, a motivation there about why we do the things that we do that's different for a Christian. Prior to salvation, we're keeping rules because that's what saves us in our minds. It's being good, doing good gets us to heaven. After salvation, when we're set free from the law, it's now all about believing promises. Abraham believed promises, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And when we believe the promises behind God's laws, it naturally leads us to obey those laws. So if I believe that God has a specific plan for sex and, and for relationships, um, and I believe those promises, that God has good things in store for me, it leads me to obey the commandment of not committing adultery versus just reading that and saying, okay, I've got to limit my sexual activity because God tells me to. There's promises behind those commands that if we obey those, it leads to victory. The Holy Spirit's changing our mindset about the laws uh, that are in God's Word. We said that the law's not bad, right? Like the law's not evil. The law in and of itself is very good, but when we, we have to understand the purpose of the law. Law reveals sin. It, it, it defines sin for us. And ultimately, God gave law not so that we could obey it for salvation, but so that we could see just how sinful we really are. Romans chapter 8 is the climax, really, of Paul's account concerning how God saves sinners. So we could, I mean, if, if, we, if we had to, we could kind of cut off Romans right here at chapter 8. Everything we're going to see after this just really expounds upon all the truths that we've learned in Romans 1 through 8. So this is kind of the climax of the gospel here it's the, the text on glorification and how our salvation gets wrapped up and how it's kept secure until that day when Jesus returns. We can also see in this chapter, if we were to look at it as a whole, there's a triune working of salvation here. So meaning all three aspects, all three parts, all three persons of the Trinity are working for our salvation here. Ultimately, we see Paul describing us as being in Christ. So if we're believers, if we put our faith and trust in what Christ has done on the cross, and his resurrection, then we are in Christ. But we also see in this chapter that the Holy Spirit is in us. Holy Spirit's working out our salvation in us. And then at the end of this chapter, we see that God the Father is for us, that God is working for us. He's worked for us through Christ. He's worked in us now through the Holy Spirit. And so we see all three persons of the Trinity working for our salvation and as, as we've already said, the despair of chapter 7 is now conquered. The frustration of chapter 7 is given an answer. A spirit-focused life of obedience leads to victory here in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 7, I can't keep the law because of my flesh. In Romans chapter 8, I can and should be obedient to the law because the Holy Spirit indwells me. There's still that tension there of a renewed spirit and a renewed nature and a sinful body. Um, so we see the longing and the groaning here in Romans chapter 8 for Jesus to come back and put an end to sin in our life. But there is an element of victory here that I think we have to hang our, hang our hats on, that this is what we're shooting for in our Christian life to be walking in the Spirit in such a way that we are seeing victory and we are being conformed to the image of Christ. It's a progressive work there. We've talked about sanctification, a progressive work where the Holy Spirit and us are partnering together to see sin decrease in our life and to see Christ and His righteousness increase in our life. So in your notes there, the believer's relationship to the Holy Spirit provides assurance of victory in the Christian life. This is a victory chapter, and this is an encouraging chapter, and it's appropriate again that we are able to look at this on Easter Sunday because it's through Christ's resurrection that these victories and these assurances and these hopes that we're going to discuss this morning are made possible for us as the believer. First in your notes there, right off the bat here in chapter 8, we see that there is no condemnation from sin and the law. There is no condemnation from sin and the law. but according to the Spirit. Paul tells us that we are set free from condemnation based on Christ's death, not obedience to the law. There's a weakness there. When we try to obey the law in and of ourselves, uh, we make the law weak. We're, we're incapable of keeping it. So, uh, kind of a, a math formula there. If we take law plus flesh, it equals failure. When we try to take the law and combine it with our flesh, it leads to failure. John five twenty four. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Jesus says it's those who believe in me, not those who work for me, that experience salvation. No condemnation. God sends his son to fix the problem of sin and death. Life is not possible Through works. Life is not possible through the law. Acts chapter 13, verse 38 and 39 says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed By the law of Moses. It's Jesus' life that sets us free. Galatians 3.21 Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Paul says if, if it was possible for salvation to be earned through the law, then Christ would not have been sent by God the Father. Ultimately, Christ does what we cannot. He fulfills the law. He condemns sin on the cross. It says, God is done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So we've talked about this before. We, we had an obligation to obey the law, and, and what we see in Scripture is that we're frustrated in that. We can't do it. Christ comes and He is obedient for us. So He lives that perfect life. It's why Jesus couldn't just show up at the age of 33, 34, and, and die on the cross for us only, that He had to live a perfect life so that the righteous requirement of the law could be fulfilled. It's how justification works. His righteousness is now counted to us. So there's that legal aspect of it, but Christ has also accomplished things so that now the law can be fulfilled in us practically moving forward on a daily basis. That through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, we can now be obedient to the law for the very first time. Um, and, And we're saved for that purpose. We're saved for good works. It's important to note there that not only is there no condemnation, for us, the condemnation has occurred for sin and death, that in Christ dying on the cross, it's a celebration because sin and death died there with Christ on the cross. Um, and so while I understand, you know, Good Friday services, and, and a lot of times that generates the, the sadness of um, there's, there Christ is dying for us on the cross, and then we celebrate on Sunday, but really there should be a celebration on, on our Good Friday meditation as well. That, that, that sin has died, that we've been set free because Christ has paid the price for us on the cross. So I understand the element of sadness and uh, reflectiveness about our sin and our sin put Christ there. But it doesn't have to be a, a remorseful type Friday that leads to celebration on Sunday. There can be celebration all through the weekend because Christ killed sin and he killed death on the cross. And that's practically playing out now. It's practically playing out in our life and throughout history. Uh, but he condemned it. And we, we sang about this, that this morning, that through Christ, sin has died, um, and it's dying in our life now, and it'll ultimately die uh, fully when Christ returns. So we're not condemned any longer, but Paul tells us in Colossians 1.12 that we're qualified. Colossians 1.12 says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Think about what that means there, that we're qualified for this. We're qualified for this inheritance. We're not condemned. Something has been accomplished that qualifies us now for this. We're in the midst of doing um, assessments at Trinity right now. So we've got new students that are coming in. They have to take an academic assessment to make sure that they're going to be successful at our school. So as much as we need students to come and pay us money so that we can stay open and pay our salaries and all that, we don't want just any student coming to Trinity. We don't want somebody coming that's going to be unsuccessful academically. And so we give them these assessments to see if they qualify. There's some students that do so well on the assessment that they qualify for the honors assessment that we're going to do at the end of this school year. They've done something. They've accomplished something. They've earned the right. They've qualified for the possibility of being in these honors classes. Now, in in our understanding here, we haven't done anything to qualify ourselves for this inheritance, but Christ has. Christ has accomplished things where we're not condemned, we're not rejected. We had to email some students this week that that are not qualified to come to Trinity, that their assessment leads us to believe that they will not be successful. So they're not condemned, but they are rejected by their performance. Paul says here, we're not condemned, we're not rejected. In fact, we are qualified for this inheritance, not because of our good works, but because of what Christ has accomplished, accomplishing those righteous requirements of the law on our behalf. This is for anyone in Christ, Paul tells us. These truths that we're talking about right now are for anyone who is in Christ. We've talked about this already. Justification is equal for us this morning. While while we have different levels of spiritual maturity here today, we have equal standing with God, equal favor in the eyes of God if we're believers this morning. Justification is the same for all of us. We all stand holy before God now if we're believers. Paul tells us we are also now spirit-filled. We're enabled to obey the law. Going back to Romans chapter 7, verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. I told you last week, I think the rest of chapter 7 is, re- is referring back to that old way of the written code. And now in chapter 8, he's going back to that thought and telling us, this is how we serve in the new way of the Spirit. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Back in verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There are some manuscripts, and you may even have like a little note there in in your uh, version that says, some manuscripts actually read, for the law of the spirit of life has set me free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Referring to it personally about Paul, which would also lend credence to the fact that Romans 7 is not him describing himself as a mature believer, but a believer who continued to struggle with the law, who now currently has been set free. He has been set free from the law and is now empowered by the Spirit to obey. So there's no condemnation. Secondly, there's no fear of defeat. There's no fear of defeat. Paul says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong in him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul tells us that life in the spirit leads to life and peace, that life in the flesh leads to death. And he challenges us to think about what's our mind set on? What have we set our minds on? What have we filled our minds with? What, um... What promises are we believing and what promises are we failing to believe about Christ and the gospel and and the the ramifications of that in our life? He says those that set their minds on the flesh, they're on a crash course to death. Those that have set their minds on the spirit are experiencing life and peace right now and ultimately will experience that for eternity. And some of the commentators and books that I was reading on chapter 8 just kind of challenge me, what do our minds naturally default to? Do we default to spiritual things or do we default to natural things, earthly things? Are we, are we at a point spiritually where, where we naturally default to thinking about spiritual things, to focusing on the gospel? Or is that something that we have to carve out time in our schedule for? Do we naturally throughout our day go about our business thinking from a spiritual perspective? Or is it all natural, all flesh, all earthly? Oh, got to set aside some time for Christ and the gospel and meditation on things that are true. Paul says, set your mind on the things of the spirit, not on the things of the flesh. The more we believe that the spirit leads us to life and peace, the more eager we will be to pursue sanctification. Let me say that again. The more we believe that the Spirit leads us to life and peace. So the more that we really believe that promise, that setting our minds on the things of the Spirit leads to life and peace, the more that we believe that, the more eager we're going to be to pursue sanctification in our life. Paul highlights the flesh life. He says the mind is at odds with God. It's enemies with God. It cannot obey God. It's incapable of obedience. It can't please God. So this isn't highlighting a, a Christian who's walking in the flesh. The Bible doesn't really picture that as being something that, that's viable or possible. It's, it's more a picture here of a believer and an unbeliever. Back in chapter 7, verse 5, for, we, "...for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work, and our members to bear fruit for death." So there was a time where we walked in the flesh, There was a time when our sinful desires were aroused by the law, but, verse 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. We're no longer living in the flesh. The spirit life means being possessed by the spirit. There's some already not yet tension there. We have the Holy Spirit. We're experiencing victory, but we don't have ultimate victory over our sin yet. We're still waiting for that. So there's that already aspect, the not yet aspect of our salvation. Paul also gives us an immediate hope and a future hope. Look what he says in verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What would be the future promise there that we look forward to? What's the future hope tied to that verse? Anybody? What's the what's the future hope there attached to that verse that we can pull out from that? A future promise to to put our trust in. Okay, eternal life, but what does that look like specifically? What are some specific things that are are true about that? It's not a trick question. It's, It's just giving you an opportunity to provide feedback and interact. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Okay, so we get life to our bodies in the future. So there's, there's a hope of resurrection there that one day, uh, if, if Christ doesn't come back before and, and we pass away, that our bodies are going to be raised to life. So um, I cringe when people talk about uh, people that have died that are with Christ now as though that's the final state for them. They're in a holding pattern. This isn't what their future will ultimately look like. Yes, they're with Christ but but they're waiting and longing just like we are here in Romans chapter 8. They're waiting and longing to be reunited with their bodies. Paul says we have that hope that one day we too will be raised to life. But I think there's an immediate hope here. We, we, we're we talking about this this uh, idea that in, in our minds we want to serve Christ, but in our flesh we still struggle with that. I think Paul's telling us, too, that the power of the resurrection that raised Christ from the dead 2,000 years ago is going to uh, empower us daily. He's going to empower our life, our bodies daily to live in obedience. So there's that future hope that he's going to give life to our mortal bodies. He's going to raise us back from the dead, but he's going to give life to our mortal bodies today. He's going to give life to our flesh today to quit giving into sin. Otherwise, the license would be, okay, you're saved, you've got a new nature, but look, this body is corrupt and sinful, and we can't do anything about it until Jesus comes back. So don't worry about it. Just give in to your, your sinful desires. As it's aroused, give in to it, because there's really no hope of victory. We'd be stuck living in that, that, um, that paradox there at the end of chapter 7. With my mind, I serve Christ, but with my body, I serve the flesh and sin. And Paul says, that's not okay, that's not an okay perspective. That's not what maturity looks like, I don't believe. He says the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies, empowering you to live faithful and live obedient, not to live perfectly, not to live perfectly. We, de- we desire that, we want that, but it's not going to happen. But there is victory that can be experienced in the Christian life, more than we probably live in like we should Colossians 3, 1 through 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Again, that future hope, but also the picture that we have in baptism where we've died with Christ and we've been raised to walk in newness of life. Not just newness of mind, but a newness of life. And the Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead raises us to life spiritually to where we can now walk in obedience. We can walk in obedience as Christians. Again, not perfection. In no way do we believe that a Christian can reach a state where, where he's now able to live perfect. We all, The only hope we have of that is when Christ returns and we do experience that real physical resurrection. But in the meantime, we are challenged and the hope is placed there before us that we can walk in the Spirit and not consistently over and over gratify the desires of the flesh. Specifically, I would say even... The same desires of the flesh, over and over, going back to the same sins, the same patterns, over and over. 1 John tells us the Christian does not live in habitual sin. Ultimately, Adam has caused sin to indwell us. Going back to Romans chapter 5, Adam's actions cause sin to indwell us. Christ causes the Spirit to indwell us. Look at verse 10 and 11. but not in Colossians 3, Romans 8. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. There's that if clause. If Christ, if the Holy Spirit, then victory can be attained. So again, it's all about Christ. It's all about the Spirit doing this through us. And this promise isn't given to unbelievers. It's not given to the man who who wants to achieve perfection or achieve righteousness by being obedient to the law. These promises are given to those that have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. Verse 12, so then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Again, that that present hope that we can put to death the deeds of the body. What's my debt to? Paul says we're no longer indebted to the flesh. We're not required to give into it. We're responsible now to put to death the deeds of the body. So he, he poses, uh, so then we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. He never really comes back and states what we are indebted to, but the implication here is that we're now indebted to yield to the spirit in our life. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. There's a, particip- a participation there. Remember, we've, we've highlighted that in sanctification, that the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit takes place in us, but there's a participation by us. Paul says that we are to kill the deeds of our body, not that the Holy Spirit will kill the deeds of our body, that we have a responsibility to kill these things in our life. How do we kill the deeds of our body? I wrote down a couple of things as I was studying. You can jot these down if you want to. It starts with meditating on the Word, meditating on the Word, praying faithfully. Why are those two things necessary? Because I'm taking it back to the, the three step process that we've already gone through to know, to reckon, to yield. We don't need anything more than that. Like, we don't need to come up with uh, new ways to fight sin. We don't need to come up with new methods or, or new books to read, really. It's, real, it's really laid out for us in these passages. Know, reckon, yield. So we have to meditate on God's Word and pray faithfully so that we will know what we need to know. Principle there in scriptures that that with the, the Holy Spirit's participation, we can read, pray for enlightenment, pray for knowledge, and He'll give that to us, and then identify sin. Identify the sin in our life. Identify the unbelief in that sin. John Piper has a book entitled Battling Unbelief, and he works through different sins that we give ourselves to, and he identifies the things that we're not believing in that leads to those sins. I think it's important to identify specifically the sin, not just, hey, pray for me, because the the, the last aspect there is to seek accountability. So meditate on God's word. Pray faithfully. If you're not praying for victory in your life, then you can't expect victory in your life. If you're coming to an accountability partner saying, I need help in this, and the truth is, is that you're not meditating on God's word and you're not praying faithfully for yourself, well, that's where I need to hold you accountable to first is that you're seeking to kill the, the deeds of your body first at home in your own life. But then identifying sin specifically and not just telling an accountability partner, hey, please pray for me. I'm struggling with this. But to be specific about how we're struggling, to clearly bring it to the light, to be honest and to to, to allow that to really come out because I think The Holy Spirit uses that honesty to help us see how disgusting and revolting our behavior really is. So We bring it to the light. We expose it for what it is. We don't just say, hey, I'm struggling with sin. Can you you pray for me? That's that's easy confession, honestly. That's, That's easy confession. Honest confession is um and and hard confession is I'm struggling with with lust in my life. I'm struggling with this specific website. I'm on this website for this amount of time. See that's that's not that's not easy to start because because then, then it really starts to expose us for what we really are. I mean we we can find some type of comfort in our accountability groups where we're just kind hey pray for me I'm struggling with this and, and everybody's like oh, Amen like we're all struggling with that. But then when I start really breaking it down, like, then it really shows what I really am. And I think the Holy Spirit uses that honest confession to bring us to where we need to be from a mental standpoint. It gives insight into how we can really pray for each other. And this is a learning process and a growing process for our accountability groups. But I would challenge you as you're meditating and praying and seeking to identify sin in your life to really identify it to really spend some time meditating on what am I not believing. So, so what am I not believing that causes me to yield to this sin again and again and again and to seek accountability that can really help you. We could spend a lot of time on that, but we're going to keep moving. Um, the truth that we find in these uh, collection of verses here is that my indwelling sin is being overcome by the indwelling spirit. My indwelling sin is being overcome by the indwelling Spirit. Something that was not possible for the law to do is being done by the Holy Spirit because our sin would just use the law to produce more sin. The Holy Spirit is doing something that the law could not do. And we're also encouraged here to find that while we talk about ourselves being slaves to righteousness, There's a bigger aspect that we are also adopted now as sons and daughters. And that brings a whole new level of relationship to our our service to God, not just as a master, but to a father as well. He says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Then our third point this morning, there's no despair from enemies. So there's no condemnation, there's no fear of defeat. Instead, there's that, that hopeful victory that's communicated to us. And then number three, there's no despair from our enemies. Paul wraps up that discussion of our adoption by telling us that we have to suffer with Him if we're going to be glorified with Him. And there's a promise of suffering there for the Christian life. And he starts in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So There's a couple different ways that we need to endure our present sufferings. First, endure your present sufferings in light of the future. Endure your present sufferings in light of the future. The future will be better than the present, Paul tells us. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. So previously we're told that we are adopted as sons. Now we're waiting for adoption as sons. Again, that already not yet aspect there. Uh, And ultimately our adoption will be finalized when we get our new bodies, Paul tells us. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope; for we hope for what, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. A couple of things here: uh, creation is waiting for the future, and believers are waiting for the future. Creation waits for the future. Paul tells us that creation was subjected to futility because of Adam; that it waits to be set free. It waits to be renewed. Revelation twenty-one one through four. A lot of similarities in the last two chapters of Revelation and the first two chapters of Genesis. Revelation 21, 1-4, through Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people." and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This this hope of glory, this setting that's described here, is highlighted as a new heaven and a new earth, that creation will ultimately be set free from what it was subjected to. So this, again, is support for... Um, a younger earth perspective, even talking about you know just creation and evolution and, and sometimes wanting to blur that at times to where maybe God used evolution to bring about what we have, and so it doesn't violate our understanding that God created everything, but he used other methods than maybe we've been brought up to, to believe. The problem with that is that to, to reconcile that evolutionary mindset with the fossil record is to admit that death had to happen before man. And what we see here in Romans 8, that there's a real aspect here that creation has been subjected to the consequences of sin. That death and and decay and destruction has has flowed out of Adam's decision. Meaning that prior to this, it wasn't there, that that creation wasn't subjected to futility. And so it lends support to the fact that, um, that Genesis is how we read it. That, that, that it was a real account of how Adam and Eve were created and how everything else was created. And that through that sixth day of creation, God brings Adam and Eve uh, into, into being. And that through their sin, sin wrecks all of creation. And all of creation is looking forward to the day when it's fixed. Creation and believers looking forward to the future. Believers wait in the sense that we wait to be set free from our sin. The Bible tells us here that we groan, We groan inwardly because of our sin that still is there. We groan outwardly because of our circumstances. We ultimately long for what 1 Thessalonians 4 promises, the day when Jesus returns and the dead in Christ rise first, and we meet them in the air, and we're always with the Lord. Our new bodies are given to us. This hope that Paul gives us is a confident expectation. It's based on the down payment of the Holy Spirit. He's the first fruits of what we've been promised in the future. So we endure our present sufferings in light of the future. Next, we endure our present sufferings because of the present assistance of the Holy Spirit. We endure our present sufferings because of the present assistance of the Holy Spirit. What do we mean by that? Well, look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He helps us in our weakness. Remember, we're weak in our flesh to obey. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. He empowers us where we're weak. Specifically, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So not only does creation groan, not only do believers groan, we have the Holy Spirit groaning here as well, looking forward to the future. He helps us in our weakness. He intercedes for us. He works with the Father because they both know what we need. Look at the result of his prayers. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Isn't that encouraging that as we're going through sufferings, you know, we've talked a lot about the purpose of suffering, so there may be even tension in your own prayer life. Do I need to pray to be released from these circumstances? Or do I just need to pray to be empowered to endure these circumstances? Kind of going back to uh, what Dan had asked a few weeks ago. How do we rejoice in the midst of evil going on? If we're supposed to rejoice in our tribulations, are we rejoicing about evil? And so sometimes there's tension there. Should I pray for this to go away or should I pray that it stays and does what it needs to do in my life? We can take comfort in the fact the Holy Spirit knows exactly how to pray for us in those situations. He intercedes for us. He knows what we need. The Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is praying and knows what we need as well. So there's that participation there, the Holy Spirit interceding, helping us in our weakness. Next, endure present sufferings because God is working good in them. We come to the familiar verse here, verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So we do need to participate in our sufferings, and I challenged you a few weeks ago about how to do that, that we trust that God is doing good, even when evil's going on around us, but instead of just trying to weather the storm and say, okay, I'm going to hang on and hope this goes away soon, that we look for ways to do good in the midst of our suffering, that we Uh, if we trust that God is wanting to do good, that we help bring that good into play in those circumstances. This is true for us individually as believers, that God is working not just good for the body of Christ, but working good for you as an individual believer. Your elements of life might not be good, but together they become good. Think of it this way. Um, A lot of times... There are things that we enjoy to eat that if we were to separate them out into ing- ingredients, they wouldn't be very good individually, right? Like if you were to take what uh, what constitutes chocolate cake and split it up and begin to eat those individual ingredients by themselves, you might say, well, this isn't very good. I know Chris is picky with me about some things. There's some things you won't eat even if you tasted it and liked it, but then you found out there was an ingredient in there, Um I'm I'm the same way about some things. There's there's things that I won't touch if I just even find out that it's in that. I might like it, but just the mental note that there is this in there. um, I'm like that with uh, raisins, for sure. Mushrooms, for sure. Like, I don't care how much you can't taste them. They're in there for a reason. Uh, You didn't just arbitrarily throw them in there. You threw them in there because they added flavor, and I don't like the flavor of those things. So I stay away from stuff like that. Uh, There's other things that I can't tolerate individually, but I'm fine with them when they're incorporated into things like tomatoes. Like, don't show me a tomato individually, but you can incorporate it into ingredients uh, uh, that make something that I'm going to enjoy. When things are separated, they're not very good, but when they're combined together, they produce something very good. And that's how it works in our own life. God takes individual things that are happening in our life, and maybe individually it doesn't feel very good, doesn't look very good. But when it's combined with God's purposes, it is doing something very good in our life. So we can view our circumstances as individual ingredients that God is putting together to produce something very good in our life. And it's not something hypothetical. He tells us exactly what the good is in our life. It's our conformity to Christ. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, what that means is is that we're not promised good in the sense of (coughs) um, good from a world perspective, obviously. We're not promised comfort. We're not promised the things of this world. We're not promised prosperity. We're promised that we're going to be conformed to the image of Christ. We're also promised that we're going to suffer to get there. And we're promised that in the midst of the suffering, each thing that's going on in our life, when it's put together with everything else, is going to produce that good in our life, that we will be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the hope that we have this morning. He describes it for us and kind of lays out how salvation works specifically Verse twenty nine. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Verse thirty. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now we could we could bog down there and really try to get into the Calvinistic understanding of what all those words mean um, and the the implications of that for us. And and there's a, there's an appropriate time for that. But I think what Paul is, I think the main point that Paul's trying to make there is that of course, of course God is going to work good for you right now because he's always been working good for you. He's been working good for you before you ever existed. That's why he draws our attention back to future past. It's not necessarily so that we can kind of lay out and start dissecting all these words and, and what that means. Again, there's an appropriate time for that but I don't want us to miss the overall purpose for why he brings this up. He brings this up so that we understand he's always been working good for you. If you're a believer, you've always been part of his plan. He's always had you in mind, so he's certainly not going to lose sight of you right now in the midst of your present suffering. He's always been working good for you. He foreknew you. He predestined you. He called you. He's justified you. What he's saying is you're on the tail end now. Like, why would God lose you now? Why would God abandon you now? Philippians 1.6, he started the good work in you. He will certainly complete the good work in you. So Paul draws this out now to say he's always been working good for you. He's going to continue to work good in your life and you can trust in that. Lastly here, endure present sufferings because our security is based on God's love. Not our performance. Told you this was the security chapter. This is the, the victory chapter. And so it's not based on our performance, it's based on God's love for us. Three things that we see about God here as we start to get to the end of this chapter. Verse 31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? First of all, God is my protector. God is my protector. He's for me so nobody can be against me. No one can work evil against me because God is always working good for me. There's a hope there that nothing outside of God's plans and purposes can affect me. Nobody can work evil towards me. Satan can't work evil towards me. His demons can't work evil towards me. My flesh can't work evil towards me. My enemies can't work evil towards me because God is always working good for me. So any attempt to be evil towards me, God turns it into good for me. We see that none better than in the story of Job. When Satan thinks that he's attacking God's people, it simply works out for God's purposes in the life of that individual. And that's a hope that we can cling to. Secondly, God is my provider. God is my provider. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is the greater to lesser argument. If he's already given us his greatest gift, how could he withhold lesser gifts? Paul's saying, if God's already given you the greatest gift possible, he invested his son for you. He sent his son on your behalf, if he's given you the greatest thing that he could ever give you, how could you think that he would possibly withhold a lesser gift from you? If he's always been working good for you, why would he stop working good for you now when you've been on his mind in eternity past? It's a comfort and encouragement to us this morning in the midst of our sufferings that God is working good and that he's providing for us in the midst of those sufferings. Second Peter chapter 1 Verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. See, we're not making this stuff up. Like, this doesn't just sound good. Stop trying to obey the law. Start believing the promises and it'll lead to obedience. This is what Scripture teaches. He said, God has given us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. How are we rescued from it? By believing God's promises. And I'm giving you promises this morning. He's our protector. He's our provider. Thirdly, he's our justifier. He's our justifier. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We are right in God's eyes. You may I want to write this down. We are right in God's eyes because the only one who could condemn us died for us. We are right in God's eyes. Because the only one who could condemn us died for us. See, that's the hope of of our sanctification is that we're not pursuing sanctification to get acceptance in God's eyes. We've already been justified. We've already been declared right. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done. So in the midst of trying to be holy, in the midst of trying to walk in the Spirit, in the midst of falling back into the flesh at times, we don't have to revert to feeling condemned. We don't have to revert to feeling that, that condemnation is coming upon us because the only one who could condemn us already died in our place. And he already justified us. He's already declared us righteous. So even if your accountability group's not functioning like it should, and you feel overwhelming oppression that people in our church are condemning you for your behavior, this church cannot bring charges against you. This church can't stand before God one day. Your accountability group, your family can't bring charges against you. The only one who could bring charges, the only one who could condemn, already died in your place. We've been justified. That gives us such hope and assurance as we seek to be obedient now. It frees us from the law. It frees us from feeling like I've got to perform to earn God's love. We find here that we've had God's love before we ever existed. And he's always been working good for us. And he continues to work good in our life. And our last point here, there's no separation. No condemnation, no fear, no despair, no separation. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord couple things here. My future is secure, which gives me confidence in the present that nothing can separate me from his love. There's no affliction. There's no created thing that can create a divide between me and God. Because here's the thing. The one who could separate us, the one who could separate us chooses not to, and that's Christ. Revelation 1:17 through18 the one who could separate us from God chooses not to. verse 17 talking about John when I saw him, so John, I fell at his feet as though dead. So John stands before Christ and he falls down dead but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. In the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. What Christ accomplished on the cross for us is that He gained victory over sin and death. He's alive forevermore. He holds the keys to death and Hades, and He is our justifier, which means we have nothing to fear as believers that we've been set free from death. We've been set free from Hades. We've been set free from condemnation. And the only one that could could change that, the only one that could uh, alter that is one who chooses not to. It's the one who's promised us that from time past, I've been working for this. I've been working for your salvation. And you can trust that I'm going to finish this salvation, that I'm coming back one day. I'm coming back one day to completely obliterate sin from your life to give you new bodies, so that you can experience the resurrection that we celebrate today, that Christ has been raised. And spiritually speaking, we too have been raised with the hope of one day being physically raised as well. The application for us this morning. For the believer, there is no condemnation and no separation. for the believer there is no condemnation and no separation we must know it reckon it true and yield to it for the believer there is no condemnation and no separation we must know it reckon it true and yield to it now that's 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 a nice statement but what do we do with that i want you individually as as your Examining your own life and your own fight against sin to start identifying which one of these aspects you're struggling the most with. Are you not knowing things like you should? Are you not knowing them in a way that it applies to you like you should? And are you not yielding to that truth? Are you not uh, responding to that truth that you know like you should? And I want us to become more sensitive to uh, as we're talking with brothers and sisters in our church that are struggling with sin, I want us to become more sensitive to identifying where our brother and sister is not doing this appropriately. Do I need to encourage them to know things? Is, is is their sin based on a lack of knowledge about Scripture? Is their sin based on a fact that they know Scripture but just not for them? Like they're they're not rightly applying it to them. They see it as true but not true for them. Or is it that they're not yielding to what they know and what they're believing to be true about themselves? That's the pattern that we see for victory in Romans 6. And it continues to resonate through chapter 7 and chapter 8. One passage I want to read as we close today, 1 Corinthians 15. As we strive to know, as we strive to reckon, as we strive to yield, 1 Corinthians 15, 54, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. My encouragement to you guys this morning from our our understanding of chapter 6, 7, and 8 is that you're dead to sin. You are dead to the law. You've been set free from those things. If you're a believer this morning, you've been empowered by the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. He's raised you now to live life to live life abundantly, to live it submitted to the Spirit and not to the flesh any longer. Those are the truths that you need to know, and that's my job. As we gather on Sundays, my job is to communicate what you need to know. Your job throughout the week is to study and know the things that you need to know, but then the difficult part comes in where you take those truths and make them true for you, that you then start to cling to those truths and yield to those truths. And so that's my prayer as we move forward out of 6, 7, and 8, is that we know those truths now, but that we would reckon them to be true for our life, and that we would yield to them so that we are a church living in victory over sin and not a church that's going back to the law when the law cannot save us, it cannot justify us, it cannot sanctify us, that our only hope is through the Holy Spirit working through us as we learn to believe the promises that God has given to us. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful this morning that, that we have these truths communicated to us, that we do have these, these promises, these precious promises that you've made to us. And Father, I pray that we would cling to them, that we would cling to them for ourselves, that we wouldn't just see these things as theological concepts that are really neat to talk about and discuss but that, God, we would, we would see you speaking to us individually through them and that we would recognize that before the foundations of the world, that you foreknew us and that you determined to save us and that there was never any doubt that we would be saved, that before we ever existed, our salvation was already playing itself out. And so, God, we're thankful this morning that we can rejoice and celebrate what you've accomplished in our life. And Father, I pray that we would not simply live in the past, but that our past understanding of how you've been faithful to us and how you've worked good for us would spur us on in the future. Father, that we would wake up each day knowing that you are for us and that you desire our victory and that you've ensured our victory by putting the Holy Spirit within us. God, help us to realize that we have been set free from sin, that we are not indebted to the flesh, that we are not indebted to the law, that the righteous requirements of the law have been fulfilled in us through Christ. So, Father, I pray that through that freedom we would now live faithfully for you as we believe the promises that you've made to us. God, I pray that we would see victory over sin in our church. Father, I pray that in our accountability groups, one, that we would be faithful to meet, God, help us to see that killing the deeds of the body means that we meditate on the word, that we pray faithfully, that we identify sin, that we identify the promises that we're not believing, but that we need help in doing that. So God, help us to be faithful to seek accountability. And God, I pray that through that, we would see the deeds of the body put to death here at Sovereign Hope. That this church would be honoring to you. That we'd be living in a way that is worthy of our calling as we wait anxiously for ourselves to experience the resurrection that happened 2,000 years ago with your son. Father, I pray that as we leave today, that in celebrating the resurrection, it would spur us on to communicate the resurrection to those around us, that others too can join in in this anxious hope that we have, this anxious longing and groaning that we have for a new heaven, new earth, new bodies. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church Podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the Word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org Again, that's org.